Hi and welcome to another episode of The Leadership Enigma. Now, many people say that context is everything and I've got a little bit of experience of that, whether it was prosecuting and defending in the criminal courts or who knows, being an operational police officer with the Metropolitan Police. But join me after this as I speak to Roderick Yap, who certainly can talk to us about context and how important context is as he's a former officer with the Royal Marines Commandos. Join me just after this. In a constantly changing world, today is as simple as it gets. You're listening to The Leadership Enigma, a podcast to explore, experiment, and power up your leadership to make the difference to your business, your people, and your success. Whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or corporate executive, each week we dig deep into global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts, and disruptors. Now, here's your host, Adam Pacifico. Hey, Roderick, and welcome to The Leadership Enigma. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Adam. Pleased to be here. I've grabbed everyone's attention, no doubt, with that introduction that you're a former officer with the Royal... I always wanted to be a Royal Marines Commando. Uh, can I just get that out now, Roderick? It, it didn't happen, but I, I remember having the recruitment posters on my wall at university, and that was going to be my direction of travel. And then I became a dull lawyer. So I, I've, I kind of failed at that. Tell us a little bit about you, Roderick, because you didn't start life as a Royal Marines Commando officer, but you certainly became one. Tell us about you. Yeah, so um, I grew up kind of all over the place. My father was in the Foreign Office, so we sort of followed his career. I uh, went to school in Kent, went to university in Bristol, and then came to this sort of decision point of what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Um, I decided that I wanted to do something a bit different, and I fancied the idea of sort of service and a bit of a challenge. So I joined the Royal Marines in 2005. Um, I was one of 30 to pass through training, right. uh, probably by luck more than anything else. Um, and then I served for seven years, so 2005 to 2012. Um, the highlights of my career include uh, frontline service uh, in Afghanistan, a place called Sangin um, in the Helmand province. Right. Um, uh, I was lucky enough to get sent out to Libya at very short notice to evacuate civilians when the um, Arab Spring kicked off and the Gaddafi regime collapsed. And then towards the end of my career, I specialised in uh, counter-piracy, Served a couple of tours off the coast of Somalia and was even tasked to rescue or recover a pirated vessel, um, a 55,000 ton container ship called the MV Monte Cristo. Um, and I had a fantastic time in the Corps. It taught me an enormous amount. I would do it all over again, um, perhaps with a, with a new set of knees given half the chance. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's <laughs> Yeah, you and me alike for different reasons, that's for sure. Um, I don't have many episodes where people talk about piracy, and I think you said you were lucky enough to be sent to Libya to rescue hostages or whatever was going on. So, you know, you've worked in in live theatre, you've worked in high-stakes situations, you have had to become a leader, deploy your leadership capabilities in an environment where life or lives were at risk. So let me kind of start at that point then. Leadership has meant a huge amount to you in very risky situations, but I know you've got some thoughts in relation to the definition or definitions of leadership that exist right now. Uh, yes, I have. And when I, when I left the Marines, I spent a couple of years in the nuclear industry um, before going out and starting my own business. And, and I started to kind of get into sort of leadership development, professional coaching, 
And I read around the subject. I looked at what were the other sort of books in, in the market. You know, if I typed leadership into Amazon, what would come up? A lot. Um, uh, there's a hell of a lot. And what I realized was that most leadership models are packaged up simple solutions. If you do X, Y, and Z, you'll be a good leader. And I started to think on them and I, you know, with every model, I think, or with every approach, you can definitely learn something from it. But I felt that nearly all of them were incomplete on some level. Right. And the reason for that was because they failed to take context into the equation. And so when I sort of thought about this and when I, when I kind of really spent some time thinking about it, you, you know, a lot of the messaging that we get around leadership is, is quite simplistic. So it'll be something like, you know, leadership is all about empowering people. It's all about um, pushing decision-making authority down to the lowest level yep. um, and making sure people have the, the sort of, you know, the, the, the responsibility and freedom to do their jobs. And I agree with that to an extent, but then if you and me were crossing the road with a sort of group of civilians on a, on a, on a leadership course and we see someone get hit by a car, I'm not going to turn to them and go, right, guys, what, what do you think the right thing to do is here? Yeah. You, you, do you think it's, do you think it's call the ambulance or should we call the police or, or what? I mean, technically I'm empowering them. So surely that's good leadership, but actually it's not, it's terrible. I'm putting them under huge amounts of stress and pressure. Adam, actually, with your background, I'm going to say, listen, mate, this is what I think we need to do. And I'm going to fill that leadership vacuum. And I'm going to take a real tight grip of that situation. And the reason I'm going to do that is because that is a context or a situation that demands someone who's going to adopt a command and control approach. Yep. So command and control, empowering people, they're like two ends of the spectrum. Both can be right. Both can be wrong. And that's where context becomes so important. You know, I, I chat to lots of clients, Roderick, I love this, because I talk to them about leadership dilemmas and actually that consider your leadership almost as a set of graphic equalizers, almost like the, 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 you know, the technology I have in front of me now. There are various sliders and you've got to keep manipulating those sliders almost by the hour, certainly by the day, by the week, in order to navigate the leadership situations you're in. And as you say, a lot of people talk about command and control is historic and there's no place for that. But there is place for that when the context demands it. And I remember being uh, an operational police officer and part of the covert teams, and there were instances where we would have to give direction, which was pretty robust in, in many ways. And it was a commanding way of asking people to comply. But that was entirely appropriate because of the circumstances and wholly inappropriate if I was working in an inclusive culture within corporate wherever. So my view is, is that, you know, like we things come in and out of fashion and we throw some of this stuff away at our peril. I think that, don't get me wrong, command and control is to be used in, in very limited circumstances. Um, it's a bit like almost industrial solvent. You don't want to use it too much because it starts to become a bit damaging, but you still want to have it there just in case you need to go to that place. Um, and so that's, that, that is, you know, one of the things that I think about in, in relation to leadership. I think it is, almost like a sort of series of spectrums and this continuous sort of, you know, movement up and down this graphic equalizer, yeah. you know, it's a combination of challenging people of pushing them hard, but equally supporting them. Now those are two diametrically opposed things, but that's where I think that's why leaders are paid what they're paid to, to get it and to get an understanding of what's going on with that person 
and then to choose their behavior so that it fits the context appropriately. Now, I'm going to come back to behaviors because I think that's such an important aspect of much of the work that we do, especially when organizations try and understand how they live the values day to day, that's through the behaviors that they deploy. And there are behaviors that will support and there are behaviors that undermine. When did, this is a badly worded question, but when did the penny drop for you, Roderick, that context really was incredibly important to the style of leader that you would be in the moment and let's be honest if you're in afghan or syria or somalia that may change by the second and it may change without any warning i think for me it was a reaction to the way a lot of people were simplifying something that i have spent an incredibly long time studying right. and i'm still studying and sort of trying to understand and trying to get better at and i just saw these simplistic sort of solutions and just thought well I can almost certainly find a way in which that approach will not work. You know, it's, it's helpful in some areas, but that was what got me really thinking about this whole context piece. Yeah. Um, and that's where I sort of started thinking about this and sort of starting to think about these sort of spectrums. I've mentioned the control one, challenge and support, confidence and humility, um, big picture in the detail. Yeah. I think leaders have to master a variety of these spectrums in order to kind of get themselves in balance. And, and, and it's, it's kind of an incomplete sort of model. I'm still kind of working it through in my head. When we chatted a couple of weeks ago, we talked, didn't we, that there is no one size fits all. There is no cookie cutter approach. Certainly a lot of the, the leadership the articles and the thought leadership and the models out there are, are useful. They're relevant. But I think what we're saying as well is that you've got to take on board that thought leadership and you've got to adapt it, modify or dismiss it as you see fit, depending on the context you find yourself in. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, a hundred percent. So there are times when, you know, I've been, I've been sat with clients and, you know, like action centered leadership, you know, team task and individual can be really, really helpful. There are other times when I've sat with people and thought, well, that's not really the challenge I have. The, the challenge that they have is actually that they're incredibly driven as a sort of sales culture. Yep. They're not spending enough time, you know, building relationships with each other. They only value people in this organization who hit the big numbers. That requires sort of something different. So I think, you know, in order to be good at my job, I have to adjust myself to an organization's context. Where are they? Where are they trying to get to? Where are there maybe some gaps um, that they haven't thought about? I, I, think it's a, I think it's relevant to everyone's role. Now, Roderick, I know you led a group of Royal Marines. Now, I don't know the term for that. What do I call that? A platoon? A battalion? It's a troop. It's a a troop. troop. See, I'm, I'm learning. This is why I love this podcast. I learn all the time. So you had a troop of Royal Marines commandos, and you would go into these quite tricky situations, and I'm underplaying it when I say that. I've got a couple of questions for you. How did you lead people that were, whilst you had the rank were probably more expert than you in certain disciplines of being a commando. I don't know, maybe they were uh, an explosives expert, maybe they were a sniper, maybe they were tactically astute in relation to X, Y, or Z. How do you leave people who know more than you do in certain disciplines? So I think the first thing is not to be intimidated by that knowledge. Right. Clearly articulate that this is what I'm trying to do. This is my intent. This is what we're trying to achieve. This is the end state that we're working towards. How do you think, using your skills and experience, we should go about doing that? Like, this is my kind of outline plan here. This is sort of what I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm. But how can you deliver the same effect but reduce the risk? You know, it, it's almost like it's sort of a, a conversation. 
And I think that, you know, over time you start to, you start to get an underst- a better understanding of what those specialist assets have, where they can be best employed. There's definitely an understanding that the decision, that, well, the final decisions that need to be taken in order to execute the plan, they belong to me and my head is on the line, you know, if it needs to be. So yeah. I'm not devolving the decision. I am asking you, what is the best way to kind of go about achieving what I want to achieve? And I think if you do that, you, you earn the respect of those individuals. Um, but equally, there's kind of a reminder that, look, you know, I may choose to go down a different route because I've, you know, other factors I feel to be more important. And they, they understand that. Hopefully, that's the ideal way of doing it, I think. I think that's a really important concept because, you know, we talk to senior leaders who may well be leading healthcare, but they're not medics. Senior leaders who are leading the aircraft industry, but they're not pilots. And senior leaders who are leading law firms, but they're not lawyers. And so there has to be an acceptance that they are leading people who know way more than they do in their specialist area. There's something else I want to pick up. When you talked about the ultimate decision will rest with you. You are the throat to choke. You are the commander in charge. But also I'm drawing comparisons with the work that I did in the Metropolitan Police. I work with the undercover units, sometimes work with the armed units. And they have to have the, the opportunity the ability and the empowerment to make the ultimate decision at the coalface. So I'm thinking also you in live theatre, your troop, they understand the rules of engagement, but at the end of the day, they will have to make the decision as to whether they pull the trigger and potentially use lethal force. How do you do that? I mean, these are, these are acute leadership questions, aren't they? But how do you do that so that your troop feels utterly empowered and supported in order to make sometimes the ultimate decision for themselves in the context they find themselves in? So the way that we used to do that was largely through judgment training. Right. So this is the framework that allows you to, to pull the trigger, to take a life, to do something that is incredibly challenging. And frankly, no one wants to do it. Okay. This is the sort of framework, but now we're going to drill you on it using discussion exercises. You know, if this happens, what do you do? If this then what? We'll do it using live videos, which we will pause at various moments in time to go, right, what do you do in this situation? Why do you do that? And gradually you build the confidence in the individual to be able to make a decision. And you encourage them to do that. And you put them under a bit of pressure if they're getting kind of confident about it. And you just keep pushing and keep working on that. And then ultimately there's this sort of line in the sand before you go on any kind of operation which is where you say, listen, if, if you genuinely believe that there is a threat to your life or someone else's life, and you think that the only way that you can solve that is by pulling the trigger, I will back you 100% as far as I possibly can. You will have my support. And that is unconditional. And, and that's what it is. That's, I think, the best way that you can do it. So you give them the skills and the tools to be able to make the decision, and then you back them no matter what the outcome is. Um, because ultimately, if they can turn around to you and go, look, I, I genuinely felt that my life was at risk, good enough for me. That's it. See, this is really interesting. Now I draw it back to corporate life, which I, I know you know you've been out of the Royal Marines now for some time. I've been out of the police and criminal justice for some time. We talk about adaptability and agility. We're working in the delta of change. And, you know, some commentators are saying you've got to transfer the authority to where the information is. So you've got to empower those people at the front line, at the coalface, who are talking to the customer in order to make 
the right decision at the right time rather than it always being deferred and ratcheted up and then it ratchets down and in some ways that causes huge delay and then your competitor is suddenly eating your breakfast. So I see enormous relevance to this. We're not talking about, you know, threat to life, but we are talking about leaders being or having the courage to really empower people and trusting them and supporting them to make the right decision at the right time because they've got the information. It's, it's 100% that. I think, you know, I'm a big fan of the work um, that David Marquet has done in terms of communicating intent-based leadership. We would call it mission command in the Royal Marines. Right. It kills me to say it because he's a submariner, but it's the best explanation of our leadership philosophy in the military. It's called healthy competition, um, Roderick. That is. <laughs> I think he's absolutely, I, I think it's brilliant. Um, and he talks about that, you know, you want to you want to give people your intent. You want to tell them what is it you're trying to trying to trying to achieve. But he also talks about you know your organisation needs to have absolute clarity around what that is, and everyone needs to understand it and be aligned behind it. That doesn't always exist in organisations. Equally, you need to be completely confident about the competence of the individual. Right. And the thing about the military and even in the police is everyone is trained. They are trained and they are drilled. So if someone says, "I'm a I'm an arm response, a firearms officer, and they've been through the course, well, then they are, you know, and it's just as sort of simple as that. So you can trust in that competence of that individual. Organizations, that's often less clear. So you need to work, think hard about those two areas, right. how competent the individual is and how clear is the organization in terms of clarity around what it wants to achieve. See, I'm loving this conversation because another conversation I have with clients all the time is skills versus capabilities. Because you're highly skilled as uh, as a soldier, uh, I was skilled maybe as a trial lawyer or as a police officer. Uh, many people that that I got Stephen with me in the studio today, which is great. Many people that Stephen and I work with on a corporate basis um, are very skilled in what they do. They might be lawyers or accountants or engineers or, or whatever it might be. But when they get to a more senior level, it's going to be more about their behaviors, their leadership capabilities, their human-centered leadership to be curious and humble and vulnerable and to be able to communicate effectively. And I could go on. But the point I I wanted to make is your troop were highly skilled. What did you expect from them from a behaviors point of view when you weren't in live theater? Because the Royal Marines commandos are probably iconic. They're probably world world famous, world known, I would have thought, with incredibly strong values. Now, we're human, so we can always drop below the line, but talk to me a little bit about behaviours. What what was the conversation you had with your troop about their behaviours when people really weren't watching them because they weren't in live theatre or they were just Royal Marines on a day-to-day basis? So it's a slightly difficult one, this. Okay. And the reason being is because... I've worked with lots of organizations that um, can talk a really good game about values. Right. Um, but they often treat it as a sort of, a, and this is not deliberate, but almost as a kind of to-do list activity. So, right, have you got a vision? Yes. Have you got organizational values? Yes. What's next? And they're working through it in kind of a methodical way as you would if you were painting a house or refitting a bathroom. Okay. And it's a conversation that they don't always understand kind of never really ends. So when someone joins the Royal Marines, they are, they are introduced to the, the, the values of, of the core. 
So, you know, courage, determination, cheerfulness in the face of adversity, all of these sort of kind of things. And don't test me on it because I can't remember. <laughs> no, I wasn't about to ask. It wouldn't be fair. Uh, and, and gradually kind of the, the training team and the group around them starts to adopt those behaviors and they start to reflect them. And over time, when the individual joins an operational fighting unit, they are expected to display those values. So guess what? There are going to be times when things are not going particularly well. But people that can demonstrate a sense of humor in the face of adversity, they're going to be positively regarded by the group and equally by the hierarchy. And we are willing as an organization not to promote people who don't demonstrate those values. Right. And in many respects, you wouldn't even get sort of a nod for promotion if you didn't display those values. Equally, if you found yourself on a command course going from uh, corporal to sergeant or marine to corporal, you could pass all of the technical aspects of that course, but fail it because you don't demonstrate the values. So, for example, if you've passed the course, you've done really, really well, but frankly, you're a selfish individual. You've looked after yourself only and you've just focused on yourself you could fail the course for personal qualities. Right. And it sounds broad, but it basically is saying, we're not willing to put you in a position of leadership. We're not willing to put you in a position of having authority over people because you don't live and breathe our values. And the only other organization I know that has done this really, really well is Netflix, who have clearly articulated their culture and their culture underpins everything. So questions around how do we hire people? How do we promote them? How do we move them out of the organization? Because that needs to be a conversation as well. That is the way in which we do that comes down to the values, which is the clearest articulation we've got of our culture. And I think it's one of the reasons that they have changed. They have evolved from being what started out as, let's be honest, a logistics organization to now a digital and creative organization. And I think that is the most impressive organizational transformation that has ever, ever been undertaken. And they've done it completely under the radar. And you can do that if you get your values and your culture right. So that's, that's an interesting example, isn't it? Because hand on heart, can I say that the professions or some of the corporates that I know would do that? Someone who's a high performer, highly skilled, delivering results from a KPI point of view, but actually from a behavior point of view is not really living the values is there really an issue and that that actually has happened to me before i've okay. been sat in a conversation with some people in a financial services organization and you know they've got a got a tick boxes of you know like can he do this has he done this you know all these kind of things there was a process and they wanted to go through some form of culture change and i and i asked the question i said right Firstly, are you willing to remove a really high performer that makes your organization a lot of money that thinks all of this culture and value stuff is a complete waste of time? And everyone went quiet and sort of all looked at each other. Or looked at their, looked at their shoelaces. And they said, we've, we've had to do that. And as I subsequently found out that the reason that we were having a conversation about culture was a regulatory one. Right. So... You know, people will, people will do what they're told. They will be incentivized to make you money if that's what, if that's what you want them to do. Um, but the how becomes really, really important. 
because often that's where that's where the sort of problems lie in, in how they've been doing that, how they've been behaving, what sort of culture they've been creating within your organization and what sort of knock-on impact does that have. And that's the reason I was in that conversation. Right. So I think it's, it's true, isn't it, that so many corporates have uh, wonderful values, but they are values on a computer screen, on a piece of paper, maybe emblazoned on the wall. But unless people have actually gone through a process of really thinking about the behaviours that support and the behaviours that undermine, very difficult for people to role model them, very difficult for people to hold themselves and others accountable, and very difficult for people to live those values on a day-to-day basis because they just haven't worked it out for themselves as to what it means in their lives. Yeah, and this is, I think, you know, this is this is a long-term thing, right? Um, you know, it's not the responsibility of HR, it's the responsibility of the executive, of every leader within that organization. Too often, frankly, it's a it's kind of box-ticking exercise. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, to some extent, I'm a bit like, well, that's fine, that's okay. If that's the kind of organization you want to create, no problem. But you will carry risk with that. You will, uh, you will have some potential issues around attracting and retaining talent. Yeah, for sure. It might not be a particularly nice place to work. There are lots and lots of hidden issues with that. Um, and often it's born as a kind of hidden cost in terms of employee turnover and all these kind of things. You know, the, the, the cost of, of attracting people to an organization in a market whereby, you know, that organization is known for being completely toxic like, what's the cost of that? You know, it's totally hidden, but it exists. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I encourage organizations to explore those kind of questions because um, I think they're worth thinking about. That's no, good advice. And there, there have been saints and sinners, I think, throughout the pandemic, and, and that's on a global level. I, I want to ask you another question in relation to self-awareness because we chatted about this when, when we talked, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. But I, I wanted to get your thoughts on self-awareness that matches the intention, if you see what I mean, or, or whatever environment you're, you're within. And self-awareness must be something that's huge for you when you were a Royal Marine and for your troop in order to then forever be reflecting on how are they coming across, how are they being perceived, and especially in foreign cultures. So any thoughts in relation to the power of self-awareness to kind of match that impact with intent? So I think... I think firstly, self-awareness is fundamentally the, the foundation upon which all leadership behavior sits. Right. And the reason for that is, is that if you're not self-aware and if you're not actively asking people to comment on what you do well and what you can do to improve, you have no idea on what your impact is. So for example, I could be leading a group of people and I could make this assumption that, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pretty good leader, I know what I'm doing. But unless you ask them, you have no idea. So asking people questions like, you know, what do I do that's helpful to you? What do I do that frankly gets in the way? That's really, really important because your team, those people that you are leading, they are the customer of your leadership. So if you're not asking them and if you're not generating self-awareness by asking them, what do I do well? How do I set you up for success? What do I need to do less of? You're flying blind. You, you don't know. Um, and I think that's a really, really important question for leaders to ask themselves. And, it, and, and I don't see necessarily enough of them doing it yet. I like that phrase, the customer of your leadership. Uh, listen, another question has popped into my head, which you might be able to answer. What's been your biggest lesson that you've learned 
during your time with the Royal Marines? Was there a point in time we went, I've just learned a massive personal lesson? Is that, is that something that springs to mind or that you can even share? If not, then, then don't worry. No, so I'm very happy to share. I, th- I, I don't think there... I don't think there would be particularly sort of just one. I think from all of the leaders that I worked for, I learned different things for from. So my first company commander um, was it was a pretty hard driver of me, if I'm being really honest. He right. pushed me extremely hard. But what I learned from him, or I guess what he embedded in me, was that concept of your team are the customer of your leadership. Right. But the way he said it to me was, know the men, know them inside out, know them better than their mothers, know them. Know them. Um, and the reason for that is because if you know them, the, the underlying thing that's going on is you are actually demonstrating that you care about them. And he said, at certain points in your career, you'll, you'll, you'll start to feel the temptation to start to look upwards because you're thinking about those senior ranks. You're thinking about your achievements as a, as, right. a, as a general officer and where you could potentially go. And, you know, there'll be some money attached to that because it's, you know, it's your pension at the end of the day. He says, the moment you start looking up as an officer, you've lost it. You need to keep your focus on the men beneath you. There's that humility piece there, isn't there? And I spoke to John Amici, who's a former NBA player and a psychologist here in the UK. In one of the first episodes, actually, he said a phrase to me that really resonated when you just explained that. And he said, he said you've got to understand that leadership is energy expensive. And what you've just described is energy expensive of taking the time and being authentic to really understand and care for that troop of men. At the end of the day, they could save your life, but it's still important. It's 100% that. And I like that expression. It, it, is, it is energy expensive. Um, it, it's a little bit like parenting in that respect. It's, it's, it's hard work. It's complex. You know, you can go into a conversation with someone and they've just, I don't know, broken up with their partner or they're going through a tricky divorce and you may have an agenda that you want to, you know, have talk about the performance of the organization, but the context has changed because I maybe just shared that with you and you need to adjust yourself accordingly. And it's hard. It's hard. And the only way you learn, the only way you get better at it is frankly by, by making mistakes and, and having another go and learning from those things. No one, no one does this particularly well straight out of the box, if you like. So how can people get in uh, contact with you, Roderick, if they wanted to uh, continue the conversation with you, find out what you're doing, get you to help them, their organization, their teams? Best way to get in touch. Sure. So um, my company name is Leadership Forces, um, leadershipforces.com, all one word is my website. Okay. Um, I'm an open connection on LinkedIn. So just, just invite me to connect and um, I, will, I will readily and happily accept. Okay. So those are two ways of connecting with you. Uh, my final question to you, which is a bit of fun, and this, in some ways it might test whether you've listened to some of these episodes. Because my final question is, what would be your best advice to a 21-year-old Roderick? which was probably before you joined the Marines. It would have been probably something along the lines of it's, it's, it's all going to be all right. You know, it's really easy to, I tend to be sort of quite future focused. Yep. Sort of with that, I think carries a certain amount of, you know, worry and concern about what the future is going to hold. But bottom line, it's all been all right to this stage. It will all be okay going forward the greatest concerns and worries that you've had have never actually materialized. So 
So try not to worry too much. Carl, that's good advice. And I think I need to take a, a little bit of that advice myself. That's for sure. Listen, Roderick, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. I hope you've enjoyed the Leadership Enigma. And uh, if you're game, I'll harass you in the future for you to come back and give us some more wisdom and insight, if that's all right. Very happy to. Thanks very much, Adam. You're a star. Thanks very much. Join us again next week for more essential insights on the Leadership Enigma. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show, as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with your host on LinkedIn or via our website, www.pca-global.com. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks for listening.